Hi. Professor Falk was the fifth episode of The Encrypted Economy. Now, I encourage you to listen to that episode, maybe before listening to this one, and particularly if you need an introduction to privacy-enhancing technologies. Now, Professor Falk has a particular gift for explaining complicated concepts in an understandable manner. And since our fifth episode with him, um, we covered a lot of ground with regards to privacy-enhancing technologies. I think I've covered that elsewhere. Um, now, I've kept up with his work since he came onto the podcast, and particularly with regards to his most recent article on oblivious RAM, which really caught my attention. I had to invite him back. At the heart of this is data leakage and inferring data from access patterns, even when it's encrypted. This not only protects the privacy of the subjects and data calls, but provides less clues for advanced persistent threats, APTs, uh, from malicious actors. Considering the range of big data applications for multi-party computations, these advances in technologies come not only with computational limitations, but also privacy and security limitations as well. Now, more interesting is how obliviousness can uh, vastly improve uh, these risks, uh, particularly for highly sensitive or confidential information across competitors or across regulated data sets. Framed differently, what does this make possible? this type of technology. So uh, further in the episode, we break down the differences between circuit-based versus RAM-based encryption, the use cases for each, as well as balancing efficiencies and security in multi-party computational architectures. So we also touch upon efficiency considerations for implementing encryption and secure multi-party computation. So if you have at least a basic understanding of secure multi-party computation and any interest in learning more, you have to listen to this episode. And I would encourage you to also read Professor Falk's paper on Oblivious RAM uh, linked into the show notes and to share it. Towards the end, we shift towards another area which Brett has been focusing on, which is credential management and how to link uh, verifications and credential management with uh, blockchain. So uh, in another interesting episode with Brett Falk, so excited to bring it to you. If you enjoy it, again, please share. Uh, in the interim, I bring you Professor Brett Falk. Welcome to The Encrypted Economy, a weekly podcast featuring discussions exploring the business, laws, regulation, security, and technologies relating to digital assets and data. I am Eric Hess, founder of Hess Legal Counsel. I've spent decades representing regulated exchanges, broker-dealers, investment advisors, and all matter of fintech companies for all things touching electronic trading with a focus on new and developing technologies. We are happy to have returning uh, to the Encrypted Economy podcast, uh, Professor Brett Hemingway Falk. So, Brett, welcome. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. Yeah. So, so for for the listeners, we're we're going to skip a couple things we normally do because Brett's already been on, and and in fact, he was sort of the building block for much of the subsequent episodes that we did in privacy enhancing technologies. He was the first. So he, he was, you know, he was a pioneer in this space for us here. So, um, so, so if you haven't listened to that episode or you forget, uh, either way, I think that's one of the episodes definitely worth a repeat, you know, gets a, get his background, get his origin story. You know, if you want to brush up on some of the basics of multi-party computation, homomorphic encryption, privacy enhancing technologies, go there. Um, but we're just going to kick right into it. Um, so, so 
this was great. I was so excited to have th th that Brett agreed to come back on. Um, and of course, I'm reading, I'm, I'm looking at his academic papers over the last year. He hasn't stopped. He's he's a he's a force of nature. He's like, you know, intellectually curious about everything and and, and deep dive and very intelligent. What a what a boon to the, the, the overall space. We had a long talk before even doing this podcast. We're like, okay, we got to find a way to to cut this down. Uh, for the podcast. But but with that said, uh, we're going to launch right into it. And we're, we're going to talk about privacy enhancing technologies, but we're going to start off with, uh, you know, sort of a question of the state of privacy enhancing technologies, specifically as it relates to cost improvements and computational limitations. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's been a, a barrier for a lot of these um, these techniques is that they are very slow, right? So we can talk about a couple different things. There's um, multi-party computation, MPC, um, like fully homomorphic encryption, and then hardware-based solutions, things that use like trusted execution environments like SGX. So right through with MPC, you're trying to compute on some private data and you have a group of people and now they're going to run this computation. They all have their own private data and they all have to communicate with each other. And these protocols first is they grow with the number of participants, right? They grow quadratically. So if I have five people, they all have to talk to each other. And so if I have 10 people now, right? Um, 10 people all talking to each other is a lot more than five people all talking to each other. So with the multi-party computation, they work much better with um, smaller groups of participants. Whereas something like fully homomorphic encryption, in principle, you can encrypt your data. You don't need a whole group of people. If I have, it works well if there's just maybe one person who wants to outsource their data to the cloud and have the cloud compute on it. But both of these systems, they're software-based systems and they have some huge overhead. And, you know, rule of thumb is maybe it's like on the order of a thousand times slower or something to use one of these secure multi-party computations than to do the same uh, computation in the clear. And again, it depends a lot on exactly the type of computation you're going to do. Um, but this is something that is a, a big problem. And it's a real barrier to adoption for these things because um, it, it's just very slow. And so you can do a lot of these um, much smaller computations, things that would have been very fast, right? If you were going to try to do some computation on private data and it was going to take you, you know, a millisecond to do it in the clear, well, now a thousand times slower, it only takes you one second. And if you're um, only doing this occasionally, right? This is no problem at all. But if you were doing some kind of, you know, big data type of computation, which was already sort of pushing your computational limits, right? You basically have no hope of doing something like that using current um, MPC or fully homomorphic encryption solutions. Um, and the hope is that all these things will get faster, but, but that is a, a big barrier now. Um, and one of, one of the, the issues I think with this is that um, the, uh, computations for a secure multi-party computation, they have to be oblivious. And I think this is something we can talk more about, but basically the idea is that you have to hide not only the data, but also the control flow, the execution of what's happening. Um, because this can't depend on the data. And so, for example, like a really simple t uh, example, I think of showing why um, these computations are much slower is imagine you wanted to do some search over private data where you, know, um, you have an encrypted array and I wanna find the first element in your array where you have a, an encrypted array of people with salaries or something you know, with their salaries. And I wanna find all of the indices where 
people's salary is more than $100,000 a year. If you do some kind of computation, which is um, doesn't decrypt, right? So all the data remains encrypted, but you're doing some kind of secure comparison, right? I give you some encrypted query. I give you an encrypted query that says, I want to re retrieve values from this encrypted database. Um, and I want, you know, my encrypted query is some salary range. I want people whose salary is above $100,000. If you start going through this database, right? Even if the values are encrypted and the queries are encrypted, you at least know what records you're touching. And if you go through this database and, you know, at some point, some parts of the computation, you spit out some encrypted values and some parts you don't, then you kind of know that something different was happening, right? If at the end of this compute, or if you go halfway through this database and then you stop, right? Um, and don't do any more, then you, you learn again, something about my query, right? So if, like as a simple example for imagine your your database is fully encrypted but it's sorted and you happen to know it's sorted and i um give you some range query of you know all the salaries of all the names of people whose salaries over a hundred thousand dollars right if you go along your database you're kind of going along your database doing a secure computation um and at some point you hit this threshold right because your database is sorted and now something different starts to happen at this threshold, right? Or if you cut off the computation, right? If you sort your database from highest to lowest, and if you, in a normal search, right, you'd sort of stop. You'd say, I'm not processing anymore. Once I get below this threshold, I'm not processing anymore because I, I found what I needed. I know there's nobody else in my database that's going to do this. But in a secure computation, you can't stop like that because that would leak some information. So even if all the records are encrypted, the fact that your computation sort of stopped early um, would leak information. And so that's kind of not allowed in these models of secure computation for that um, underlie uh, secure multi-party computation. And so what that means is for these even simple algorithms like searching or sorting or something like this, right? Um, you, uh, you always have to have the worst case runtime. So in like a sorting algorithm, if I give you data that's already sorted, but it's encrypted, you have to kind of go through the full sort. You can't take advantage of the fact that it was already sorted um, because if it was like partially sorted and you stopped early, that would leak some information, right? Um, and you could think of it like, you know, I think a good example is like playing cards, right? So we're playing poker or something. And if I happen to know you really like to sort your cards based on suit and, um, you know, uh, and then by rank after that, right? If you draw some cards, and if I know you're going to sort cards like this, even though your cards are sort of encrypted to me, I only see the back of them. If I see you moving cards around a lot, right, versus see you not moving cards around, um, I get some information about the, the distribution of your hand, right? Even though I never saw anything with the cards, but based on the movements you made. And this is like a good analogy that um, even when data is encrypted, you can often see what the data movements are, like where this, this encrypted data is still stored on your disk and it has to move around. And if these movements depend on what the underlying data is, then these movements themselves leak information and the encryption itself doesn't help you there. And so you need to make sure that not only is the data encrypted, but the algorithms are what are called data oblivious, that they always do the same thing no matter what. And like the, the normal sorting algorithms that you think of are not data oblivious. Like if I gave you a deck of cards and asked you to sort it, you'd you know, start looking and moving around, but you wouldn't move things that don't need to be moved, 
right? And so that wouldn't be data oblivious. And so if you wanna do a secure sort, not only does everything have to be encrypted, but you have to do a data oblivious sort, which means that you're going to do the same sorting operations, no matter what the order the, um, the data came in in. And this kind of data oblivious sort is inherently going to be um, sort of worse than um, a regular sort because it can never stop early, right? Um, and so you always get kind of the worst case runtime. And so this, this is one of the, the barriers to this kind of um, secure computation. Um, and um, it, yes. That's no, I mean, it's interesting. If you think of like, uh, to use a different example, I don't know, with a different result though, yeah. um, like you go on Google search, Google Chrome, you do enough searches over time, they're going to hone to your particular searches. And so that whole mechanism of being more efficient is already sort of built into your searches. Like I run a search, like I'll ask my kids yeah. or ask somebody else to yeah. run a search and I'm like, how'd you get that? Like yeah. I got exactly what I needed, you know? Yeah. And it's just because Google's got an algorithm that they're honing into you and, and all that efficiency is lost. And you know the impact of that of that inefficiency, you know, sort of obviously limits its use cases and also increases its computational overhead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so again, this this kind of um, secure searching is right. It's, it's something that you would like to do in a lot of situations, um, and you'd like to be able to do it sort of faster. And what I was sort of mentioning in this data oblivious world, if I just want to do one search, if I'm searching, if there's some encrypted database and I wanna do a secure search on it, I kind of have to touch every record in order to maintain privacy. Because if the search ever stops early and doesn't touch this record, then I happen to know, right, that that wasn't the record that, um, <laughs> that, that like it leaks some information, maybe a tiny amount of information, but it does leak some information um, about the encryption. On this notion of, of the cost and computational limitations. Yes. So, um, you know, as we move toward the, the um, you know, the quantum computing, you yeah. know, that, 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 yeah. that goal or, or, or just higher processing speeds. Does that make the problem, uh, obviously that mitigates the problem. Mm -hmm. Is there a pathway where that becomes, you know, where, where secure multi-party computation and even homomorphic encryption, I mean, mm -hmm. homomorphic encryption used to be what, like a million or a billion times. It was, yeah. it was theoretical. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it existed in theory before it ever existed in practice. Mm -hmm. Do we ultimately get to that point where it becomes, significantly more efficient mm -hmm. or, well, or do, do, yeah. So hardware helps everything, right? This hardware gets better, right? Everything gets faster, but the, the sort of relative ratio between um, secure computation and insecure computation doesn't necessarily decrease with hardware, right? So as you get more hardware, right? You just store more photos on Instagram and searching them insecurely is still very hard, right? Um, and so then searching, securely is even that much harder. So um, the like absolute scale of the computations you can do just definitely increases as, as the processing speed increases. And um, for secure multi-party computation, it really matters about the network connectivity too, because if you have a lot of different people talking to each other um, and they're sending messages back and forth, um, it's just much faster if, if the bandwidth is not limited and the latency is lower. So, so this absolutely helps, but it doesn't sort of get you closer to being able to do everything um, securely. If that makes sense, right? But, but do you see like how many years before? Like, <laughs> have you have you seen any studies, or do you offer? Do you want to offer any uh, guesstimates about the you know the the next five to ten years for 
I, I secure think, multi-party computation? I think right now we're already getting to the point where you can do um, you know, moderate size calculations in a reasonable amount of time. Um, and so you know, if you have something where, like a lot of the, the projects that I've worked on in the past right, have um, looked at, you have different, say, companies that have data sets and they want to do some joint analysis on this data set. So you have customer records or something. So like I think a, a nice example is like insurance companies. So you have in, uh, you know, insurance companies that have records about their, their individual patients. Um, but patients move insurers all the time, right? Nobody keeps a single insurance company for a really long time. And if you want to ask a statistical question, like, does the preventative care we gave you when you were 18, does that reduce the amount we have to pay for your care when you're 60? That's a really hard question to answer because no no insurer has the continuous record of somebody when they're 18 and when they're 60, right? And so you'd like to link across these data sets. And if you want to do something simple like a linear regression or something, or just even like a, a cross correlation of, you know, let's look at these two categories, people who had preventative care when they were young and how much do we pay for them versus people who didn't have preventative care versus how much we pay for them. You'd like to aggregate data from lots of different data sources. Um, and you'd like to run this kind of calculation. But now, right, th these data sets can be kind of big, right? They can have millions of records or something, but they're not, they're not sort of big data by what we call big data now, right? They're not the, you know, a, a database with, you know, 100,000 records or a million records is not sort of pushing the limits of standard computation now. And so this is something that we can actually do um, with secure multi-party computation. And so this is something that's really nice. And especially because this is something that doesn't have to be done in real time. If it takes you five minutes to do this computation, or if it takes you an hour to do this computation, right, the companies, right, they're okay with that, right? They're not, it's not like a user interface that where the answer needs to be there. And if you're a millisecond slower, your user is going to go away, right? Like you have some research analyst who wants to do this and they start this job running overnight and tomorrow morning they get the answer. And it's pretty cool because it was an answer that they just couldn't have gotten before, right? Which is very different from like the, the Google kind of experience where you say, I would like to crawl the web of, you know, I don't even know trillions of web pages, how many web pages there are, and give you some response. And if I'm, you know, five milliseconds slower, um, you're going to go to my competitor. Like, that's, we're, we're very far away from that, right? But we're actually right. in, a, in a pretty good realm for, you know, analyzing, you know, databases with, you know, hundreds of thousands of records or a million records, especially if they don't need to be done in real time. Um, so, yeah. Yep. No, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I, but but I was going to actually note your you know a perfect example of this. I think um, you wrote a paper last year, privacy privacy preserving network analytics. Mm -hmm. um, you know specifically for a financial financial network models. I think the anticipation was use in traditional finance yeah. uh, regarding risk management solutions. You know and sort of getting a sense of risk across. Um, you know, multiple financial institutions without leaking their own particular holdings. Um, you know, yeah. presumably, th th yeah, that wouldn't be a real-time model, which I guess is also good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. So, so this paper, we were looking at, yeah, these traditional financial models where you have some number of, um, you know, financial institutions like banks, and they have cross holdings in the form of debt, and they have cross holdings in the form of equity. And you want to ask questions often about financial stability. So like there's a lot of questions about stress testing. So you say, what would happen if, you know, everybody's assets dropped by 10%? Would, would 
Some people default on their debts. And if they defaulted on their debts, then you have to worry about a, a sort of contagion, some kind of collapse of um, like a cascade of collapses where if I default on my debts, then the next bank that I owe money to might default on their debts and you could have a whole chain of failures. And this kind of um, this type of analysis requires you to have a global view of the entire network because nobody can do that locally, right? I can say what would happen to me, what debts I would default on if, you know, my assets drop by 5%. But what if all of the people who owed me money, what if they stopped paying me, right? Then I might default on even more. And I don't know whether they're going to default or not. And so the only way you can kind of figure this out is by looking at the network as a whole. But in practice, right, a lot of the individual institutions certainly don't have a global view of the network, right? They know what their own um, assets and debts are, but they don't know what the, the you know, full balance sheet of all their competitors uh, and all their counterparties. And um, actually, even now with a lot of the um, regulatory stress tests that are being done, they're done locally. And so they don't actually take into account these cascades of failures. They ask each bank individually, hey, what would happen? Would you default or not? if, you know, um, under these different scenarios, but they don't actually look at the whole network. And to, to look at the whole network, you have to aggregate kind of all of this private information. And so this is uh, actually a really nice use case for secure multi-party computation, because if you only care about the large financial institutions, which maybe is reasonable, you know, if you're worried about like these sort of um, macro events, it's there aren't that many of them. Maybe you have a hundred banks, or you know, even if you had a thousand banks, right? This is something that's sort of within the realm of feasible today. And you want to ask these questions. You want to ask these kind of counterfactual questions. Hey, what if everybody's balance sheet dropped by five percent? Would we see a cascade of failures or not? Right? And that's like the kind of question you like to answer. And now each individual institution has its private information, which is all of its debts and. Um, and that's what they feed in. And you do this kind of big calculation and out comes some answer. And you can tune it to release whatever you want. You could it, you could just say something gener generic about like, if under this scenario, there were this many failures and not identify people, and that gives them a little more privacy. Or you could say, if, if it's important to know who the people who failed were, right, you could have the, the secure computation release that. Or you could have the secure computation only notify the individuals themselves if they were going to fail and not release that data to anybody else. And that would be sort of, again, maybe more privacy preserving. Because I think, as we talked about last time, this notion of privacy is also very subtle in terms of what does the output of the computation leak? And the, the cryptographer's view of secure multi-party computation is that the whatever the output of the computation revealed was okay. Like that's the cryptography can't hide the output. You wanted to get the output. So if the output includes a list of everybody who failed under this, you know, hypothetical drop in asset prices, well, the MPC is not trying to hide that. It's trying to hide and it guarantees you learn nothing more than that. But even that might be embarrassing to you. If you're a company, you don't want it publicized that, you know, if asset prices drop by 5%, you'd um, fail on your debt. So you might want to say the output reveals even less. Um, but that's a that's a question for the designer of the computation that's sort of outside of the cryptography. The cryptography doesn't try to hide that. The cryptography just hides the underlying inputs to the computation. And it says, whatever we'll make the output whatever you want. And the output could be a list of everybody who fails, or it could be just a count of the number of people who failed, which would reveal less information. Or it could be different outputs to all different people to say to individuals, hey, you failed or you didn't, and not tell 
anybody. And that might be less useful to society, but it would um, be more privacy preserving. So this is a question sort of like outside the secure computation, but we can build a secure computation to do any of these things while keeping the underlying balance sheets of all the companies private. And you can do that. And now again, this is a computation that probably would take, you know, on the order we, we did some benchmarks for about, um, you know, a network of 20 banks or something. And, you know, on the, you know, academic hardware that we have, which is not all that fancy, it's reasonable on the order of, you know, hours to do this. Um, and, um, but, you know, if you were willing to pay $50,000 for some hardware, right, you could probably increase this by a decent amount. And if you wait two years, $50,000 will buy you even more hardware and it gets even more reasonable. And the number of banks that you actually care about doesn't really grow maybe that much in the world. It's not like, you know, the number of big banks doubles every year, right? You still just have like the top thousand banks control everything. Um, and so this is a kind of computation that's actually really reasonable to run. And if it took you, you know, overnight to run this calculation, it's not, it's not a big deal. Like you don't need to know the output, you know, in milliseconds or even in minutes. Um, so this is, I think, a really nice application of this type of um, secure computation. And again, it doesn't have to be, we, we chose a very concrete example about looking at, um, you know, uh, financial contagion in interbank networks, but you can ask these kind of questions for almost any type of, um, you know, group uh, or consortium of um, companies. Right. Well, in, in, in the context of a regulated institution uh, that does have to do risk analytics on systemic risk and report it, um, you know, th th this would better enable maybe the smaller participants to adjust their models <laughs> within cycles of examination or what have you, or not have to wait for published reports, but to actually maybe real time manage it a little bit better and better situate themselves, you know, to something that could change quickly. Now, if you're like a large bank like JP Morgan, your sheer size probably gives you a pretty accurate barometer of the entire marketplace. And that information would be obviously very valuable to a lot of participants in the network. But, you know, JP yeah. Morgan's not going to be like, okay, here's my, here's my balance sheet, go figure it out. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, it, it reminds me years ago when I was general counsel of the stock exchange, there were, you know, a couple of very large clients that were so big. Uh, somebody once explained to me that they, the, the large clients in certain names were the only ones who truly understood the market, the actual market for certain securities. Like their vision was so perfect yeah. that no one else in the market had the same information just by their sheer size, Yeah, which was kind of crazy. And there's things you can do without even violating regulation, you know, because if you're managing risk that, you know, think about, you know, managing risk, you have to manage risk. And of course you have perfect information. So think about the significant advantage that that provides. So yeah. something like this, you know, across banks, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's, you know, regulators might say, you know, you know, have you adopted this yet? Are you part of this network yet? Because this network would enable you to act, you know, to sort of manage it more real time. So definitely, um, it's a definitely an, an interesting use case, and, and it's, it's easy to see how that could be something more important, particularly for something like risk, where you don't have to have that real-time information, but managing it night to night, and you know, who knows, over time, maybe more real-time, but yeah. you know, we walk, then we run. Yeah. yeah, but also I think you bring up an important thing here, which is that you know, secure multi-party computation, one of the things you can think of it is a, a way to cryptographically replace a trusted party. So if you had a regulator that sort of mandated that everybody give over their, you know, full balance sheet to the regulator, the regulator could just run all of these tests internally. 
And, you know, maybe under some conditions, they would actually do this. But the idea of a secure multi-party computation is now you don't need this trusted regulator. And so even if the trusted regulator exists and they say, we're going to do this once a quarter or something, right, the actual institutions might want to do it more than once a quarter. They may want to do it once a day, right? Or they might want to do it under different hypothetical asset prices. They think maybe that regulator is being too, you know, conservative or who knows what, right? But they just want to do it more often or under different conditions. This kind of computation wouldn't replace the notion of a trusted regulator, but it would allow people to do kind of more that the regulator wasn't in place to do for them, right? Um, and so I think that's a, a thing that's really um, kind of cool about it is that it's, um, yeah, it would allow people to, the sort of the consortium of banks or whatever companies that were interested in something like this, right, to actually sort of, uh, you know, to collaborate or to cooperate in a risk assessment um, that, that wasn't specifically mandated, but they think would be maybe more accurate. Um, the other thing that I want to point out is like after in writing this paper, I spent a while like looking at the Dodd-Frank bill, right? Dodd-Frank and the stress tests that that um, requires are all local stress tests. They ask each bank individually to sort of run these counterfactuals and they do not take into account any of the network dynamics. So all of the like financial literature that tries to model, um, contagion in interbank networks, right? None of that is captured in this kind of local stress testing. That's um, the type of stress testing that's done by Dodd-Frank or that's mandated by Dodd-Frank, um, which is exactly the kind of um, contagion that you can capture by looking at the whole network, which you can do in a privacy preserving manner using these uh, secure multi-party computation tools. Right. And, and I, I've raised this point before this, this notion of, um, you know, a, a regulator has access to a honeypot of information. Even in the trading marketplace, this attempt to sort of, you know, aggregate data across asset classes into a singular database that that different exchanges can access. That whole process of saying, if we give you all the information, now you can run your own analytics. Well, that, you know, there's a lot of variation in security. Um, so, you know, what, what happens is you're creating, you know, greater risk by trying to contain it, you know, you're maybe not exceeding it, you know, but if, if one party doesn't have the, the greatest security, you could have some real issues. When I was a general counsel of Direct Edge, um, you know, a lot of times the parties you think you trust um, to have the best systems don't. Uh, NASDAQ had something called the director's desk where public companies would share information for years. NASDAQ's not a, a regulator, you know, they have a regulatory aspect in FINRA, but companies would share the most sensitive public information, often relating to going public. And it was disclosed to us, not to the general public, that they had had a, um, a ongoing hack for an unspecified period of time with access to an unspecified amount of information. In other words, it was significant. And it was like, we learned years. Uh, and you can just imagine like, you know, somebody with a backdoor to this information, the way that they can abuse it and how it could have been used to the detriment of these public companies. Now, NASDAQ, it's a pretty significant organization. Yeah. Um, you know, why do we necessarily believe that somebody with an exchange license or or any other party consuming it just because it's a bank or even the government themselves necessarily has a lock? They're a honeypot. I mean, Solar Winds taught us one thing. It's that like, it's, this is not just you know, you're talking about, DO, you know, Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, all those, all those institutions had potential vulnerabilities due to the solar winds hack. So um, anyway, reduce yeah. this honeypot, you know, yeah. with the regulators with that intermediary role. 
they should view that data as toxic and they should be looking just say, hey, how do I run red flag zero knowledge and minimize the participants access, including my own Mm -hmm. to this database, you know, in in a way that's unencrypted. Let me leverage encryption, get the information. If there's a red flag, then I collect the information. But before then, maybe I don't. Yeah, that's a really important point that even if you have a trusted party who could aggregate the data and do the computation right now, they are um, a real target, right? And if you do this kind of distributed computation, since the data is never aggregated in one place, um, there, there is no single party that you can attack um, and, and you know, steal aggregate data. So that's, um, I think, yeah, a really important point to make about this. The other thing that's a little tangential is, and this is actually another use case for MPC, is actually sharing these um, uh, security breaches. So this is, companies have been very interested in this kind of thing, which is you have a bunch of companies that are maybe in the same space and they're all under constant cyber attack. Um, and they would benefit on the whole of sharing um, essentially risk and breach information with each other, right? If they say, you know, attackers are trying to exploit this. And so like, you better make sure you're all patched up in this, or, you know, I'm noticing some weird activity on, you know, um, this type of server. Like, is anybody else who's running these servers experiencing these same kind of, you know, um, like penetration attempts or something like this. And the issue is that in practice, right, companies don't want to share any of this information with their competitors um, because, it basically makes them look bad. Nobody wants to say, hey, you know, this is how many cyber attacks I'm getting per day. Even if all, even if you happen to know all my competitors are getting the same number, right? Like I still don't want to make, release that publicly, but you would benefit on the whole if you could share that information and have some sort of aggregate database that just says, you know, like, you know, maybe that's looking for anomalies of saying like, there's a lot more people are noticing, you know, this type of threat recently. So like, or just pushes out generic alerts, um, based on this private sensitive data that each company has about their own, um, you know, vulnerabilities and, um, the threats that they've either (laughs) successfully thwarted or been, um, you know, vulnerable to in the past. Um, and so this is actually a great use case for MPC is sort of to, um, get aggregate analytics on, um, cyber threats. And, um, to, to just stay with the cost for a little bit, and then we'll get into the main episode. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, the you when in our discussion you talked about the the, the cheap version like how do you get the benefits of encryption um, mm-hmm. today without yeah. with less cost I'll, I'll let so, you yeah so so there's a there's a bunch of different ways to do this one thing um, is you can use secure hardware so secure multi-party computation and fully homomorphic encryption are like software based solutions um, but you can use these trusted execution environments like Intel SGX. And they give you basically the full power of computing on encrypted data that you could get from fully homomorphic encryption, except it's all done in hardware. And so it's just much, much faster. Um, And so this is a route that's like very practical today to do a lot of, um, you know, pretty reasonable computations. And the the overhead is not very big. Actually, the, the overhead is that it's a little bit annoying to write code that runs in SGX. But well, you know, once you do that, you can you can with some tweaking um, get almost anything you want to run. And there are more and more companies that are um, starting to come up that are writing um, essentially wrappers that will try to es- take your code and sort of get it to run inside an SGX for you, so you don't have to think about the security side very much yourself. Um, and so this is like a, a great application. And the big downside is that you're sort of reliant on. Intel to maintain the security of their SGX chips. And 
there's um, just a whole slew of academic papers that say, you know, under certain circumstances, you can um, really break the security of SGX. But, you know, it's still nobody, I think, would claim that it's not better than nothing, right? Like, it's absolutely right. better than nothing. And, you know, it's it gives you some pretty strong guarantees that if I'm going to do some computation and use some platform like Azure or something, I can get them to run an Intel SGX enclave to me, for me. I can encrypt my data directly to the SGX enclave. The data can be computed on inside SGX and the encrypted result can be returned to me. And I can get some guarantee that the, um, you know, the sysadmins at Azure and everybody who's, you know, co-located on those machines um, really can't access my data up to the security of, of SGX. And this is like exactly the same kind of security I would get with fully homomorphic encryption where I encrypt my data, I send it up, they compute on it and send it back. Except now, um, you're just really relying very heavily on Intel. Um, but we're seeing more and more applications of this because it is um, just, you know, orders of magnitude faster than um, MPC or fully homomorphic encryption. Um, and what are some of the uh, outfits that maybe you're familiar with? And you don't, I'm not uh, asking for an endorsement that that, that, that wraps it. Yeah. So um, uh, um, there's a company, Anjuna. Um, if you go to anjuna.io, their goal is to basically make interfaces for you um, so that you can code in sort of the native languages you'd like to, um, to um, actually, you know, get things to run inside of um, an SGX enclave. Um, um, so, yeah, that's one of these things. The other thing I want to say that's um, separate from this is, um, uh, well, actually, Back on that, Google had a project, Google Asylo, which was supposed to be wrappers for this. And I kind of think that project has mostly died out, but I thought it was a very cool idea um, that was um, for, you know, again, just to have um, standard, an abstraction layer that you could write in this sort of secure language and then could file down to whatever secure hardware you kind of happen to have. Um, um, uh, yeah, but there, there's more and more tools that are being developed for this. Okay, so so now we're gonna now we're gonna talk about oblivious RAM. Now we, we talked a little bit about the concept of, of obliviousness, um, but but in talking about uh, oblivious RAM, uh, can we start off with maybe drawing the distinction between circuit based versus RAM based, um, you know, yeah. use cases or or benefits? Yeah. So so one thing I was saying about um, when you're doing a computation with secure multi-party computation or FHE. Um, the, the people who are doing this computation, they kind of see the data movement, right? If I have fully homomorphic encryption and everything is encrypted, I still know when I'm adding two encrypted values or I'm multiplying or when I'm writing one to a disk and reading it back. And so even though the data is hidden, the, what's called the control flow is not hidden, right? I can see what's happening. And again, you kind of get this, um, one of the, the clearest examples of this is something like a sorting algorithm. If I give you some encrypted data and I ask you to sort it, Right. If you did a traditional kind of sorting algorithm, if you could do a traditional sorting algorithm, you know, under FHE, and then the sorting algorithm moved a couple pieces of data and then stopped, that would leak the information that the data I gave you was like almost already sorted. Right. Um, whereas if I gave you some information, if I gave something and told you to run this sorting algorithm under FHE and it moves stuff around and it moves stuff around for a long time, then, you know, the data was not sorted that I gave you. And this, again, leaks some information, which is um, in principle is a problem. 
And there are actually a lot of applications where um, the, this leaked metadata actually, it, it feels like maybe it wouldn't be so much, but there are cases where it's actually a big problem and allows you to infer a lot of information about the underlying data. So in whenever you're doing computations like this, you need to make sure that the computation you're doing is what's called data oblivious, that the control flow, the like data movement is independent of the underlying data. So if you're going to sort them things, the, the sequence of reads and writes and data moves is the same no matter how the data came in to begin with. Um, and this is, in some sense, a separate topic from cryptography. There's a whole literature in algorithms about data oblivious algorithms. And you know one of the main use cases is for privacy, but it's also useful in other situations where if you wanna build hardware to do something, um, the hardware is maybe not as flexible as the software. And so you kind of want a hardware circuit that's always going to do the same thing, um, you know, always have the same data movement. And so this one way to ensure that is with what's called the circuit model, where you have a, a circuit can be like an arithmetic circuit, which basically means that you have some data that comes in on wires and it gets joined in at gates, where the gates are like addition gates, which say like add the two things that came in and give me the output, or multiplication gates, where you say multiply the two things and give me the output. And in principle, again, every computation can be represented as a circuit, but that circuit may be very large because again, the circuit doesn't change, right? You're thinking of the circuit as laid out and no matter what data I put in, the circuit, you know, the same sequence of additions and multiplications happens in this circuit, right? You're thinking it was like a sequence of pipes that are like joining things. Um, and, and so the circuits are great because they are automatically data oblivious. Um, and so when you're talking about secure multi-party computation, I'll say, I know you give me a circuit and then I will execute that circuit securely. And the circuit has only a couple of different kinds of gates and it'll have like an addition gate and a multiplication gate. And so if I can figure out how to do a secure addition and a secure multiplication and join them all together, then I can do a whole secure circuit. And I happen to know that any computation you want can be expressed as a circuit. And so now this is great. I can do any computation you want securely but it doesn't mean I can do it efficiently um, because I, I can't guarantee you that the circuit representation of something is very small, right? The circuit, the, the initial step before the secure computation of taking what you want to do and converting it to a circuit, right? Might be um, really, really big. And again, like one way to think about this is if you're writing a computer program and you have an if statement, you know, if this, then you do one thing. And if you, if, if something else, then you do something else. And this is like a branching a branch in your program. In a circuit, right, you can't branch like that. You kind of have to execute both halves of the branch and then merge the results at the end. And um, this means that you don't get any of the benefit. If I have a condition, which is like on rare occasions, I have to do some big computation, right? Um, but, you know, 99% of the time, it's really fast. I can't take advantage of that in the oblivious setting. And so I can't take advantage of that in the circuit setting because the circuit is always going to do the sort of the worst case amount of computation um, because it doesn't know, right? Sometimes it's going to have to do that and it can't change its control flow based on the data that's coming in. And so again, sorting is like this example I keep coming back to, right? Well, it's just like if I have a, a sorting algorithm, 
and like if you think of like a naive sorting algorithm like index sort right like if you were going to sort a deck of cards what do you do you kind of look for the lowest card and you put it at the beginning you look for the next lowest card you put it at the beginning right the amount of data movements you do depends a huge amount on how sorted the data you know how sorted the cards were to begin with and if you try to do something like that as a circuit you always are going to have to move the cards the same amount which means that you always have to move it the amount as if they came in like fully unshuffled and you can never take advantage of the fact that hey look that most of the time the cards are already like sort of partially shuffled um and so this is already like a performance hit kind of right away that's right off the bat um and it's a performance hit that's really bad for examples um like sorting and like searching so again searching right what's the the naivest way, if I give you a deck of cards and I say, you know, find me the queen of hearts, right? You can just scan each card until you find it and then stop, right? But if you want to be data oblivious, you can't stop. You have to keep scanning each card, each card all the way to the end every time. So even if you find it on the fifth card, I still have to kind of go through the whole sequence to, to, to show you that I'm going to do that. Um, and so this data obliviousness means that your running time is always sort of the worst case running time. And so that, that's, um, that can be very painful basically in terms of uh, <laughs> uh, of a cost um, so so the idea is you'd like to be able to do secure computations in what's called the RAM model which is like the random access memory model and so there's this notion of what's called oblivious RAM and oblivious RAM is asking this question you imagine you have it was named this you imagine you have a secure trusted processor that's do you know and you can think of that as yourself that or you can think of it as like a really small hardware component and this hardware component is going to write out to um to your regular computer's ram which is untrusted and it can hide the contents of the data by encrypting it right so i have some i paid a lot of money for this really small you know trusted hardware component and it's doing all these computations for me but it can't store all the information it needs. So it has to use the regular computer system memory and it's going to encrypt everything before it puts it out there. But anybody who's watching the system can see, hey, here's the memory addresses it reads to and writes from. And this sequence of memory accesses actually can um, reveal a lot of information about the underlying computation. So this is kind of like metadata leakage. So even though all the actual data is encrypted, seeing where people read and write leaks a lot of information. Um, and so the idea for Oblivious RAM was, can you make a compiler that takes a, a sequence of read-write accesses and makes it oblivious so that basically from the, the view of somebody who's monitoring your, your computer's memory, that um, all of the sequence of data accesses look the same. They're all kind of look random and you can't distinguish for example, a sequence where I read and write to the same address a lot, I can't distinguish that from a sequence where you would want to read and write um, to all different places. And so um, now, although the name is Oblivious RAM, the, the applications are kind of much bigger than this right now. Um, cloud computing is a big thing, right? And you can think of this in the cloud perspective. Then instead of a trusted hardware component, I have me on my trusted computer, and I want to outsource a lot of data to some database in the cloud. And now I can encrypt all my data there. And I'm not even going to ask them to do any computation for me. I'm just going to ask them to store my data. But what do they see? They see all of the times I read and write from a, a location in their database. So even in the simplest case where their database is just like a big array, it's just a list of like all the encrypted files. 
right? They, they get to see every time I read from, if I read from the same file every time, if I read from different files or the sequence of files I read from or things I touch and don't touch. And this actually really leaks a lot of information. Um, and so um, the idea of oblivious RAM, again, is a sort of intermediate layer that says when you, it, on my side, when I say I want to write to, you know, location three in this array, it actually kind of randomizes things and writes to a different random location on the actual untrusted memory. And then when I want to read from something, it reads from, uh, you know, from it keeps track sort of of where that random location is, but it's constantly re-randomizing. It's doing it in a really complicated way in such that I can actually prove that whatever sequence of reads and writes I was going to do, actually it gets a random sequence of reads and writes that's indistinguishable. So if you if the server operator who's operating the actual database and sees all the read-write patterns, they can't tell, for example, if I read and wrote from the same place every single time or every time I wrote from some place, read and wrote from someplace different. Um, and so this is the idea of oblivious RAM. And so this is, again, it's about hiding like um, me metadata or access patterns. And there's a lot of really interesting work that shows like this kind of access pattern leakage is um, is a big problem, and you know so um, there's you know there was a lot of um, works about things like um, symmetric searchable encryption, right? Like you might like to have something where I put all of my emails in the cloud and I encrypt each one of them separately, and then I later want to search them based on keywords or something. And there's a lot of simple things that I could do here, right? I could just say I'm going to encrypt all of my emails right, each one separately. And then I'm going to encrypt like all the keywords from them as individual values and tag each encryption with like its keywords. And if I do this with a deterministic encryption so that every keyword is encrypted, if I encrypt it a second time, it encrypts the same way. Then later I could search it. I could then like essentially each encrypted email has a set of like encrypted random tags with it. And when I want to search for, you know, um, emails that have the encrypted economy in them, I will encrypt that and send it up to the server and say, hey, send me back all the encrypted emails that have this encrypted tag and everything stays encrypted. And this sounds really good at first, right? That um, everything is always encrypted at all times. But the problem is, right, the server sees, right, in principle, if you don't do this right, right, the server could see a lot of information. First, it sees um, if uh, like how many times I query for each individual word. And if I query for a word, how many responses are returned, right? And knows if I, how many emails came back with this. And just these kind of count statistics actually reveal a surprising amount of information. So like just as a benchmark, we, um, we downloaded the uh, the old Enron data set. It's hard to get like good email data sets, but like just as like a as a hypothetical idea, like imagine you wanted to use this to encrypt emails and search for keywords, and then we made a dictionary of like ten thousand keywords, and then we said, you know, imagine you have some sequence of um, keyword accesses, and all I give you is how many results are returned. So how often you search for a given keyword, and how many results are returned for each. Um, for each query. Now, can you identify, can you just using this information, you have like none of the underlying data, can you identify which keywords are being searched for? And with like basically like off the shelf techniques, we could identify like 20% of the searches, um, which is like 
pretty big considering all the actual data is encrypted. Like this is just metadata leakage. And this is, you know, what you can do with just like a little bit of results. We actually submitted this to a place and, and um, the, the reviewers were like, yeah, well, that's kind of obvious. Like this is not groundbreaking at all. And so we never <laughs> ended up publishing it. But like there's, there's a lot of really good work on this kind of inference that like inference is really strong. And if you do... If you set up a system where everything is encrypted, but the access patterns are leaked, you can actually reveal a lot of information. Um, and so this is what Oblivious RAM is, is getting at. Uh, it is how do you hide this access pattern information? Um, but then the, the kind of neat thing is that once you can hide this access pattern information, then you can imagine doing a more complicated secure computation on top of it where you're in what's called the RAM model, where you're doing computation that requires random access memory, where you're reading and writing to different places, where it seems like the control flow would be different, but now the control flow is randomized essentially by this oblivious RAM. Um, and that means that you could then do secure multi-party computations that you don't have to first represent as a circuit, that you can actually represent as a RAM program, which is kind of how you would represent um, a most of the computation that you would do insecurely. So it gives you a sort of a more natural um, like programming environment with the costs that are much lower. And so you can really reduce um, the, the cost of, um, of doing a lot of these secure multi-party computations if you could do them in the RAM model. So this is um, this paper you're talking about is trying to build what's called this distributed oblivious RAM um, or DORAM. And the idea of that is basically to use... Um, uh, secure multi-party computation, essentially in the RAM model. Maybe draw some distinction where you see ORAM being more efficient than MPC and where MPC is more efficient than ORAM. ORAM by itself is not doing any computation. It's just a way of in interfacing to this sort of untrusted data storage, which you can think of as an untrusted, you know, like memory card or an untrusted cloud server or something, but it's like writing, reading, writing to this untrusted array. And now you can use that as a building block to do more complicated computations that you'd want to do securely. Um, and so basically the, like the, the place where the circuit model shines, yeah, is, is again in places where there's um, a, where the control flow would naturally kind of depend on the data. So just back to like, secure multi-party computation, most secure multi-party computation is done in a circuit model where you say, first, we represent the computation we want to do as a circuit, which means there's like a bunch of additions and multiplications, say. And if you have a bunch of additions and multiplications, you can think of that what you're getting out is like basically like a polynomial. Like if I add something a bunch of times and multiply it sometimes, like it's like a polynomial. It's like, you know, X to the fifth plus five X plus seven or something, or it could be in two variables, you know, Y to the third times X squared plus... But right, that's all you can do with additions and multiplications is make these kind of polynomials. And we know right, you can approximate everything with a polynomial. You can do basically everything with a complicated enough polynomial. But polynomials, sometimes the degree of the polynomial has to get really big. Like polynomials don't naturally represent a lot of other kinds of functions. And so on the mathematical side, if the function you want is sort of naturally represented as something like a, kind of like a polynomial, then it's fine to do it in the circuit model. And if it's not well represented as a polynomial, then um, you want something that's in um, like the, the RAM model. And so I keep coming back to this example of like searching and sorting. Like these are examples of things that um, you can do much better if you have um, these kind of other tools. And so the, another type of thing that comes up here is like, why do you really want to do searching and sorting? A lot of things are about like database joins. 
is one question, right? So I have a data set with, you know, people's salaries and their social security numbers, and you have a data set of, you know, their social security numbers and their GPA. And we want to analyze, you know, how does GPA relate to salary, right? We want to actually do a database join on the social security number column, which um, requires some basic data movement to align these things together. And so this is like a a building block of things that you would really want to be able to do. Um, And this is hard to do in the like pure circuit model. I mean, you you can do it. Um, And, but um, the, it, yeah, you, you get, uh, it opens up a lot of options if you have this ability to sort of write um, RAM programs. Right. And it, does, it sounds like they're not mutually exclusive either. You could absolutely not. Yeah. yeah, absolutely not. So, and that's how you would sort of imagine. Ideally, what would go on is that people would have these secure multi-party computation compilers, which allows you to write what you want to do in some language, and it takes care of everything under the hood. And ideally, the program would choose for you, you know, whether what it's compiling down to is like a circuit or a RAM program. And this is sort of the, the goal we're getting to, right? Like, for people to use this, we talked at the beginning about efficiency, like one of the barriers to adoption is that these things are really inefficient. But the other thing is that it's sometimes like hard to understand. And what we'd like to be able to do is say, look, you just tell me the computation you want to do, right? Don't think about the security at all. You just say, look, imagine there's five people and they all have their private data. Tell me what is the computation you want to do and express that in some programming language that you're um, you know, comfortable with. And now all of this will get compiled to some secure multi-party computation where, you know, they're separate programs that each of these five people will run and they'll all communicate with each other in some encrypted way. And at the end, the output will pop out. But you as the sort of end user didn't have to really think a lot about, you know, what is the underlying MPC and, um, you know, what exactly is happening under the hood here. And so this is um, sort of the the dream for all of this. And now this MPC compiler would really like to be able to have at its um, disposal, uh, like, you know, an ORAM component that says, hey, actually, like this kind of thing that you wrote is um, much more naturally represented as, um, you know, in some kind of RAM program, as opposed to um, always sort of shoehorning everything into a circuit, which is what most of the things do now. And so again, like in terms of shoehorning things into a circuit, right? Like if I have a program and I write a for loop and I say, you know, for I equals one through five or something, but if the the length of that for loop is itself a variable, right? If I want to unroll that into a circuit to make it oblivious, I have to do the for loop as many times as as big as that variable could ever possibly be, right? Like because the number of times through that for loop, right, is observable. It's like, everybody sees how many times I went through, even if the underlying data is encrypted. And so instead of having to unroll every possible loop or every possible conditional statement, you would hope that, um, you know, being able to have access to something that um, can um, do oblivious reads and writes um, is, would, would help with something like that. Let's talk about the distinctions between three party versus two-party mm-hmm. uh, ORAM? Because it seems to me like the three-party versus two-party is something that exists independent of whether you're doing circuit-based or RAM-based. Um, yeah. but, but maybe expand on that that overall distinction mm-hmm. in terms of you know the number of parties that can compute yeah. under a secure party multi-part computation model yeah. and the implications for 
both data leakage and efficiency? Yeah, so this is something, right, in secure multi-party computation, you have multiple parties, and most schemes are what are called threshold schemes that you just you define some threshold for privacy. So if I have five computation parties, I can set a threshold of three, which is that I need three of them to collude and sort of, you know, deviate from the protocol in order to break security. Or I can set a threshold of four that I need four of them to collude or something like this. Um, and the performance sometimes degrades with the, um, you know, the security threshold. It's like a trade-off of security and performance. But there's also a question of just how many people are involved in this computation. And in some cases, there's naturally a bunch of people to begin with. So like in the example we gave about you have a bunch of banks and they have their private balance sheets and they want to compute, there's already, you know, tens or 20 or hundreds of participants. But in some situations, right, there may be very few actual participants um, who have data, right? If it's just me and you and we want to compute, there isn't like some natural third party. And it turns out that for technical reasons, having three people who are willing to participate in the computation, actually you can do a lot of things that you couldn't do in the two-party setting, or you can do them at least faster. Um, and so um, uh, the, the distributed oblivious RAM, the DORAM paper that you're talking about, we worked in the three-party setting because you could use all these different mathematical techniques. And that's, um, you know, that's in some sense almost a drawback because, right, you would like to have something that works for any number of parties. I don't want to say you need three people to be able to participate in this, but that's what we do need for this because in order to gain the efficiency that we want, we did need three people and we couldn't get that same efficiency with, um, to, with two players. Um, we'd like to be able to do that. And that's like an active area of research. But um, right now, basically like the two party computation is slower and you can think of um, uh, like uh you know, fully homomorphic encryption, right, is a way there, there's, in principle, there's only like really one trusted player. Like I just, right. right, I encrypt my data, I give it to this untrusted cloud, they do something and they give it back. And so that's the real benefit of something like fully homomorphic encryption is that you really don't need sort of non-colluding players at all. It's just like I encrypt my data. Whereas I could do the same thing with like a two-party computation kind of, but, um, you know, if, if I do a two-party computation with the cloud, then I'm actually doing a bunch of work right? Um, and the whole point of a cloud was I wanted them to do all the work. And so if I want to get the same benefit of, you know, secure multi-party computation for like outsource computation, I would need like two cloud servers at least where the two cloud servers have to not be colluding. I like secret share my data to the two cloud servers and they run a two-party secure multi-party computation. Or better yet, I have three different cloud servers and the three of them run this three-party secure multi-party computation because that can be really fast. And right now with current technology, we can do that faster than you know, we could do with FHE. But it's kind of annoying to say, we, we need three different non-colluding cloud servers to be able to run this. So the, um, like, basically, we'd like to be able to do things with sort of as few parties as possible, um, just because it gives you more flexibility. If you can do it with a few parties, you can kind of always do it with more. Um, and in some cases, though, having more allows you to increase efficiency. Um, and usually the big efficiency gain becomes between two and three. Um, and you, you, there's an efficiency loss, I was saying at the beginning, that there's an efficiency loss as you go up because the amount of messages back and forth, you're sending messages to everybody. So the number of messages grows with N squared, where N is the number of parties. So you really don't want like a hundred, it's not like the more people you get, the more efficient it is. But go, moving from two to three, it opens up a whole realm of sort of algorithmic techniques um, that do tend to increase efficiency. So right now we do see most of the three-party protocols are still a little faster than the um, two parties. 
And so like in the context of financial institutions, just to kind of spell this out a little mm -hmm. bit more, let, let, you know, we could have a hundred participants in mm -hmm. the network, but, you know, the notion of secure multi-party computation isn't that, you know, you have a hundred participants performing the computation because to your point, yes. that's just, yes. that's just yes. a mess. Yeah. So ultimately you have to choose, mm -hmm. you know, at the outset, part of the architecture say, you know, which are the three parties that mm -hmm. can, that can do this either yep. external or, or, Inter yep. you know, even potentially part of the network. Yeah. So that, that's usually how it's done that you have the sort of like outsourced MPC where we say, we have a hundred people who are going to submit data and we're going to choose three computation servers. And they, again, they can be the three, you know, biggest or most powerful of us in the group, or they can be three external parties and we're all going to secret share to them. And the security we get, the guarantee we get is that if those three people do not collude with each other, then we're guaranteed that all of our um, underlying data is going to be secure. Um, and so this is a, a nice um, model because then we don't have the um, sort of blow up in communication that we'd get if we all tried to participate in this secure multi-party computation. Um, and these, the, you know, the three or the five computation servers, however many you choose, can be really dedicated. You know, they can actually, you can spend more money on hardware and have them have really good internet connections and things like this, which you maybe couldn't guarantee if you wanted 100 people all participating in it. But you get the best security if, right, secure multi-party computation in principle would allow every one of the 100 banks to participate in this, right, and each one run their own node. Um, and that would be the sort of the best security because then you'd say like you'd need you, you could have it that you know all the other banks would need to collude against you to to break your privacy or something like this but um, from a efficiency standpoint usually we don't want to do this and so we take a, again a little bit of a hit on privacy which is to say now that the security guarantee is you know that these three servers would have to collude or these five servers would have to collude instead of you know 50 out of 100 of the other servers. And somehow it seems more plausible that three out of five would collude than you know, 50 out of 100. Um, and so you, you have this slight hit in privacy, um, but you get a major gain in efficiency. And so this is like the kind of outsourced MPC that's done a lot. Um, and um, one of the things um, I think though that's interesting in this context is that you can still, you can get back a little bit of this security by um, enforcing the MPC clients to run inside of SGX. So we said before, if you have SGX, you could just throw away all of MPC and just say, just run everything inside of an SGX. But then you're reliant on the security of Intel, which in some cases I think is fine, but in some cases maybe you're, you're worried about that. But now if you have an MPC and you have like three out of, you do a three-party MPC, but what if those three MPC clients were all running inside their own SGX enclave then in order to get any one of them to misbehave, you'd have to break that SGX enclave to get it to violate the MPC protocol. So now your security is not just that these you know, three parties got together to, to defraud you. It's that these three parties got together and they all individually broke their SGX in order to get their software to defraud you. And now that's just like a whole new layer of security on top of that. Um, and so that gives you... Um, yeah, a sort of you get the kind of layered security benefits of the kind of MPC and um, SGX on top of each other. So I think that's really nice. And um, I think that's what the um, Avalanche Bridge is doing. They have um, a four-party um, 
like multi-sig basically, which is a threshold signature scheme, um, which would need three out of four. You can think of it as like a very simple NPC that needs three out of four corruptions to steal money out of the bridge. But if each of those four participants are running inside of an SGX, now the guarantee is not that three out of four of those people need to collude to defraud you. It's that three out of four of those people need to agree to collude to defraud you. And then they have to figure out how to break their SGX and then they can try to steal money from the bridge. And that's again, like a much harder thing. Yeah. So, so um, SGX again, down and dirty yeah. way to, way to accomplish it, particularly with the wrappers uh, you mm-hmm. can build on top of that. So um, to, to, to shift gears for the last part of our, our, mm-hmm. our episode here, I uh, thought we'd talk a little bit about, um, you, you know, um, in the context of AML, at least one of the things that's come up a lot recently, more so because of all the FATF guidelines and such is how do you build a, um, like a, and it could also apply to traditional finance. How do you build a trustless environment uh, where people don't have to necessarily reveal a ton of personal information about themselves, but yet through whitelisting and associated transactions with whitelisting, we can start to not only determine, you know, who who is who is not a um, who's on the blacklist, but also you know black you know p- malicious actors can obviously take over. Uh, whitelisted accounts often happens and it, and and still you know act through other accounts that aren't on the blacklist yet so obviously it involves a lot more um, transactional analysis um, but you know Brett and I were talking about uh, both uh, the the use of credential management and zero knowledge proofs and how they could be utilized more effectively to facilitate um, you know, um, more on the KYC AML side in a way that doesn't necessarily reveal the identity of the participants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, in addition to secure multi-party computation, one of my um, big areas of focus right now is in blockchain space and, you know, with a emphasis on privacy, but actually a lot of different aspects of blockchain. But one of the ideas of block, one of the blockchain use case that I'm really excited about is this kind of credential management. And so the idea would be that you have credential issuers, which you can think of like the DMV will issue you a driver's license. And the, that would happen by they give you a driver's license and they digitally sign it. Or, you know, you get a digitally signed passport from the passport authority, or you get a digitally signed diploma from your university or something. And that you wouldn't put these documents on the blockchain because most of our blockchains are public and there's no reason for them to go on the blockchain. They, you're, the credential issuer would give them directly to you. And when you wanted to um, use those credentials to somebody else, you could present those credentials to somebody. So you want to get into a bar and you need to present your driver's license to show that you're over 21. You present this digital credential and they can verify the signature that it came from the DMV. But the, the issue there is, so at this point, we have no blockchain. That could Somebody issued you a credential and they verified it. But the issue is about this key management. In order for somebody to verify your credential, they need to know what is the public key of the issuer, right? Because if they, if they have the wrong public key, if they have the wrong verification key, then I can forge credentials, right? If they think my key is the verification key for the... Um, for these credentials, then I can issue credentials to anybody I want. So they need to know what is the, you know, the true verification key for the DMV or for the passport authority or for the university that's issuing credentials. And so that information goes on the blockchain. So everybody can see, hey, this is the public key that's associated with the Pennsylvania DMV. And then the other thing is that when you do this kind of credentials where you issue a signature on something, right, um, 
you might need to revoke these, right? If I get a DUI or something, then um, they'd want to revoke my driver's license. But you can't claw back data, right? When somebody gives me a signed document, they can't ever pull it back, blockchain or no, right? All they can do is say, hey, look, you know, this this signature, I kind of want to take that back. And so there needs to be like a revocation list. And some information about that can actually also go on the blockchain. So they, you know, the DMV can post a a revocation that says we we revoke this, this signature hash. And so now when I present my driver's license somewhere, they can look up what is the DMV's address on the blockchain and they can verify it. And then they can look at the set of revocations that's also on the blockchain. And so in that sense, it's also permanent and I can't easily tamper with it to see if the hash of my driver's license was one of those ones that was revoked. And so again, I can have some privacy here that nobody needs to know. It doesn't say like Brett's driver's license was revoked, but when you go to check this value, you can see that it was revoked. And so you can maintain a lot of privacy this way and you can have a lot of um, credentials being issued by all different credentialing authorities. And the blockchain is just a coordination mechanism so that people know um, the, the public keys of these different accounts. And then on top of that, you can now start to layer all kinds of really interesting zero knowledge proofs um, for things like, right, when I go to vote, maybe I need my driver's license to prove that I'm a resident, right? Um, but I, my driver's license has all kinds of other things. It has my photo and has my eye color and it has my height and weight and my date of birth and stuff. Um, and maybe I don't want to reveal all that to the, the people who are running the voting station, right? I just kind of want to prove to them that I'm a resident and that I'm over 18. And I say, none of, all the rest of it is none of your business. And so what I'd like to be able to do is issue a zero knowledge proof that says, I have a driver's license that was signed by the Pennsylvania DMV. It says my date of birth was more than 18 years ago and that I am you know, a resident in this county. And I wanna prove that in zero knowledge and that they can verify that statement. And so if you can do that, and that, that's actually a, very, a fairly simple um, zero knowledge proof. Um, now we can have really nice sort of privacy preserving credentials that I can reveal only kind of the amount of information that you need to do the, the things that you wanna do. Um, and so I think this is like a great blockchain use case. You know, it's um, it's very hard to get people on board to do this, right? I can't imagine the amount of work that would be needed to get, you know, the DMVs from all different states to actually like adopt a system like this. But in principle, right, this type of credentialing would be really useful. And you could do it for this kind of KYC or AML to say like, I have assigned documents that say I went through KYC with somebody. Right. And now it doesn't even have to be sort of these like legally binding documents like a, um, a driver's license. Right. Like it can be if I go through KYC with somebody and they issue a sign thing saying like, you know, I check I check Brett out and he's reasonable. Now, somebody else can choose to accept that or not. And they say, you know, uh, look, you went through KYC with this other person, I trust them. So I'm willing to, you know, accept you onto my system. Um, and so you can use it again as these kind of like, um, you know, access cards or credentials for other things that are kind of opt in. And you can imagine that being a really good way to um, sort of maintain some of the privacy and anonymity of the blockchain, but still have certain parts of it be um, accessible through um, some kind of KYC. And ideally, again, you would have that KYC be kind of reusable. Like it's really annoying if every different service I want to provide, I have to like scan my driver's license and send it up and give like a utility bill and whatever else I have to do, right? I want to do that once and have one authority say, we're issuing you this like credential and then everybody else kind of trusting that authority saying like their KYC was good enough for me. All right. right. So um, it, it basically, it basically, you know, 
it, it creates potentially a honeypot in the issuing authority. But I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is, I think there's sort of a vision of, of maybe two worlds, you know, prospectively as it relates to AML KYC. There's the one side that envisions that, you know, an identity will need to be revealed at some point in mm-hmm. order to do the underlying KYC. And then yeah. there could be a reutilization of it but it doesn't have to be continuously reutilized yeah. like today. I mean, how many times have you had to show your pass, you know, mm-hmm. send your passport online. It's mm-hmm. sort of like every time I, I have to do that in the real world, it's like, this is ridiculous. Like, yeah. you know, how many, how many imprints of my passport and driver's license are floating around just for yeah. multiple requests. It's a terrible um, thing for a user privacy, right? I hate having to scan my driver's license to send it to somebody and say, I have no idea what you're going to do with it. Right. Whereas if I can see just, issue a proof to you that I have a passport, right? You can't, that, that leaks no information about me. You can't like sell that. You can't misplace it. Right. Um, and so, so that's really nice, but then there's also um, like, there's the user privacy thing, but then there's also this thing about reusability is also really nice that um, I don't have to keep sending things um, to all different people. And then, and then there's the other vision, which is you never after her, you never have to reveal anything ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's based on blacklisting addresses and it's based on associating blacklisted addresses based on transactions with other whitelists and, you know, setting thresholds and all that. So it, mm-hmm. it, it's definitely two competing visions of, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe ultimately we end up with both. I, so I think, you know, blacklisting addresses does not seem very useful to me in the sense if there's really no um, underlying um, you know, if there's no underlying identification mechanism. So like just looking at, you know, um, like these stablecoin contracts, like, you know, Tether's USDT or um, Circle's USDC, like if you look at them on the Ethereum blockchain, you can blacklist addresses. And they both have blacklisted a whole bunch of addresses saying these addresses are no longer able to move their underlying stablecoins. And Shockingly, this has been somewhat successful. Like there's money when they blacklisted these accounts, there was money in these accounts. But if if criminals were sophisticated, right, you should always be able to outrun this blacklist, right? Like yeah, just start that, another, spin up another address. You spin up another address. And all you have to do is issue a transfer from your account to this new address before the blacklist address comes in. And so right, like right now on Ethereum, we have this problem of uh, like maximal extractable value, this MEV, right? And you can think of it as like a front running thing. So even if Circle is really on top of things and they're monitoring things right away and they see this address stole some USDC and they say, we're gonna blacklist it. And they are just like on it, which is hard to imagine that they can be so fast. But even if you imagine that, right? All you have to do is get your transfer in before theirs is in. Right. And but, right. But there's to also consider this. That's that's level one. Mm-hmm. But level two says and, and again, we can hit it from the perspective of either you can only trade with blacklisted or you can't trade with blacklisted accounts or you can only trade with whitelisted accounts, yeah. which is uh, another threshold to achieve yeah. whitelisting. Right. But a blacklisted account that transfers assets to a whitelisted account that could potentially graylist or blacklist. That, mm-hmm. that whitelisted account and so yeah. on and so forth. So, but, but even that is so hard to track because there's all this pooling happening. So it's true that if, if I steal some USDC 
and I think they're going to blacklist me, and I just immediately transfer it to another address. Well, they'll blacklist my no, new address, and we can play this cat and mouse game. And I think, you know, if I were a sophisticated criminal, I would imagine that I could front run the blacklisting transactions when Circle sends a transaction to the blockchain that says, um, you know, please blacklist this address. I should be able to, you know, basically get my um, transaction to transfer in first. But I wouldn't transfer to a normal address, right? Because they blacklist that. I what I do is I go and I take it. And I take my USDC and I drop it in the DAI's, um, like in MakerDAO's DAI peg stability module. And I immediately transfer it for DAI. And now, right, I have all this DAI and the DAI cannot be blacklisted. The DAI contract is not allowed that to be blacklisted. And now all of my, the USDC that I stole is stuck in the DAI's peg stability module contract and it's pooled with everybody else's. And if Circle blacklist the whole die peg stability module that's a huge thing i actually just looked the die's peg stability module is the number one holder of usdc on eth right on ethereum right now um and right if i steal a couple million dollars worth of usdc they're not going to blacklist this whole contract because of it now they can claw back right they can actually without blacklisting they can claw the funds back so i deposit 30 million dollars into the peg stability module um and now they claw back and they can claw back that $30 million. But that doesn't hurt me directly. That hurts all the die holders equally, right? It doesn't hurt, it, it didn't claw back my die. My die is not tied to the specific USDC that I put in. It's just backed by the sort of global amount of collateral in all of, um, uh, in all of the MakerDAO ecosystem, not just what's in the peg stability module. So like once I convert to, from USDC to die, there's nothing that you can do to me to, pretty much right and this is not like i don't want to single out maker you can do all kinds of things right like if i stole usdc on ethereum what do i do i send it over the avalanche bridge onto the avalanche network and what do they give me on the other side they give me wrapped usdc on the other side and that wrapped usdc is not controlled by circle right and so that can't be blacklisted by circle and my usdc is stuck in the avalanche bridges contract and what can they do? They're going to blacklist the entire avalanche bridge. Like, I don't think so. Um, and if they, again, if they claw back from the avalanche bridge, it doesn't claw back the, the USDC that was issued on avalanche, right? It just sort of hurts the whole pool equally. And so like these kind of blacklisting of like individual tokens, it's hard for me to imagine them actually working. Um, but interesting. I mean, there, there, there's actually moves to, uh, not only IP addresses, but I think like, uh, and I don't know too much about it yet. Uh, it's like an AOPP in Switzerland where you have to prove your wallet ownership in order to onboard uh, at any exchange or anything like that. So it basically is bringing it down that, that other yeah, level. But so then this is like a whitelisting thing, right? And so whitelisting can work. It's just extremely onerous, right? Like, but from a security standpoint, it sort of works. If you believe that, you know, your, your whitelisting process is good, then yeah, um, that's but the credential but, management is effectively a whitelist, right? Yeah, yeah, um, it de- yeah. I mean, it depends. But again, like it's very hard because these things are so interoperable. Even if I whitelist certain things, um, right? How do you handle pools, right? Like, say you say I can only, you know, interact with. Like, I I don't even know how you would um, do this, right? If I say I only interact with USDC if I'm on a whitelist, right? Does that mean you do have to put like right? 
what about all the DeFi? Do you whitelist like the Curves 3 pool, which is like a huge holder of USDC, right? Or like, you know, do you whitelist the MakerDAO um, peg stability module or do you make whitelist one of these bridges, right? And if you don't, right, that's like a huge blocker. But if you do, then it kind of, you, people can use that as a way kind of around the whitelist because they're kind of effectively um, holding this thing. Or it kind of like, in some levels, it, it breaks things in weird ways, which is, if I am, uh, you know, if if I could only use USDC whitelisted, but I have some LP tokens for the Curve Three pool, which entitles me to withdraw from the Curve Three pool, but USDC says, "Hey, we're not going to let you withdraw the USDC from this pool," then these like LP tokens are worth less to me than they'd be worth to somebody else who is whitelisted, and like it it becomes very complicated, and it's not you know, like I would think you could still probably get around that with some thought by just again, using this kind of derivative or wrapped token, right? Like a deposit into some pool that's whitelisted. And now I have the LP token, which entitles me to a share of this pool. Um, and if somebody on the whitelist can withdraw, I can't withdraw, but that's okay with me, right? I can still trade it around knowing that it is valuable to some the people on the whitelist who can withdraw. Right. Um, well, it sounds like credential, whether it's credential management or whitelisting, it seems like it's a similar issue uh, as it relates to taking part in the pool. So um, I guess we won't solve it on, on this podcast episode, huh? Yeah. Well, great. We'll definitely include uh, links to that as well yeah. in the show notes. So, okay. so Brett, uh, thanks so much for coming on. This was great. Yeah. And we'll call, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll call it there. All right. Thanks.